following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. look at the aftermath of another kind of disaster. If you were with us, we've been following David's life. We came to that low point last time in chapter 11 of his great sin with Bathsheba and plotting to have her husband Uriah killed, all of which happened. We left the text on that ringing last sentence of chapter 11 of 2 Samuel, but the thing David had done displease the Lord. Now, I intend to follow up on this both today and in another week, and my follow-up may not be exactly what you expect, but listen as I read this chapter 12 down through the beginning of verse 15, where the paragraph actually breaks a verse. Listen to God's Word. The Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich, the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him, but he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife. You have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, 
The Lord also has put away your sin, and you shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. And this is the word of our God. Great words we've sung today. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord. Grace that exceeds my sin and my guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured there where the blood of the Lamb was spilled. Grace that will pardon. Grace that will cleanse. Grace. God's grace. Grace that is greater than all my sin. We know the hymn writer had in mind the words of Romans 5.20, which says, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. I half wish that David could have been around in the early 20th century when that hymn originated. I wonder if it would have been a favorite of his. He would have sung it in Hebrew, not English, but maybe he would have gone around singing that wonderful celebration of the grace of God because he certainly experienced just that in his life. Last week we looked in chapter 11 and learned things about this man who is called the man after God's heart that we would rather not have to know. We're ashamed for David, on behalf of David, on behalf of the fine, bold, kind, compassionate, courageous, wise, man that he was and is to see what he did in that previous chapter. But today we behold the forgiveness that he was assured of when he spoke what is in English, which is of course not the language he spoke, but in English it is a six-word sentence, the words, I have sinned against the Lord. In fact, the prophet said it to him very strongly. You have despised the Lord. You have rejected everything the Lord has said and and who he is. You have acted against his character. You're a rebel against God. And David answered that with those six words. I have sinned against the Lord. And you see the reaction. You You will not die You will not be eternally punished for this. You will live, and you will be forgiven. Now, I think many of you would expect that since we looked at David in his sin last time, you'd say, if I said, what's the logical follow-up that we're going to talk about today, you'd say David and his repentance. And that was my inclination as well. But I dwelt on this text for quite a while, and I felt that to go right to what repentance is and what it looked like in David's life. For one thing, I wanted to bring in Psalm 51, and that's actually a separate message, which I hope to preach next week. But I realize there's something here we have to talk about even before we talk about what human repentance is, the prior theme of God's grace. Because if it was not for grace, any amount of crying and pleading and wallowing in what he had done wrong by David might possibly fall on the ears of a God of stone who was not inclined to hear. But God was inclined to hear, and why? Because he's the God of great grace, the God whose character breathes and exudes grace and mercy. 
As 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sin, God is faithful and just to forgive our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's his basic nature. He is ready to meet us in that nature. Meet us out of his free and sovereign grace. I believe that theme has to be emphasized even before we get into taking repentance in the human sense apart and trying to understand what it looks like. It seems as we read last time, chapter 11, David is a man in control of everything. I pointed out to you last time that the verb David sent is about almost a half a dozen times in that chapter. He sent off to have Bathsheba brought to him. He sent orders to Joab. He sent to have Uriah come. He's like the puppeteer pulling everybody's strings and making everything happen because he's the king. Kings can do that. David's in control. But look where being in control got him. And I want to point out to you that he's not the man in control now. In fact, there's nothing at all in this whole chapter that speaks of David as a man in control. We see instead the God of amazing grace who is controlling the circumstances of chapter 12. So I want to teach you, first of all, that this text tells us about grace pursuing the guilty. Maybe we don't think of that. Grace pursuing the guilty. You see, while it tells of a great spiritual turnaround, it really doesn't go into very much detail about what exactly David said in his repentance. And as I mentioned a minute ago, we really have to go to Psalm 51, which was the great confession psalm that came out of this. And we'll try to do that, I hope, next week. But repentance, you see, wouldn't have any meaning or any effect unless it comes before a God who is predisposed and entirely inclined to hear and to forgive. Here's a crude illustration. I'm not even sure how well it works, but I'll try it anyway. The great British petroleum company is one of the largest oil companies, gasoline and oil producing companies in the world, of course. And uh, I'm sure they have a CEO. I don't know his name, but I would imagine as a perk of being CEO of such a vast multinational corporation, he's got a a plastic card in his pocket, which is a BP credit card. And I would think as a chief executive, that's a card that means he never pays for gas. And if the chief executive officer of BP pulls up at any, you know, green and yellow station in the United States or other places in the world where BP has gas stations, he puts his card in and pays for a tank of gas and never gets a bill, I would think. And he could do that. Imagine if he had a week where he was just traveling all over the place and and he had to fill his tank completely up four times a week, let's say, or five times a week, as many times as I do in a month. It would still not cost him a limitless supply of fuel to go anywhere he wanted. Well, what if gasoline is like repentance? And you could repent endlessly and endlessly for everything. But what if, now here's the strange part of my illustration. Mr. CEO goes to his garage and turns the key to start the ignition of his expensive car, his Mercedes, whatever it is, and it doesn't start. And he wonders what's going on here. And he opens the hood and finds an amazing thing. There's no engine under the hood. Would it help him that he had endless limitless availability of gasoline to go anywhere he wanted 
If his car doesn't have an engine, silly sounding illustration, but that's exactly where anybody is coming to God with human repentance apart from the grace of God. You can come with all kinds of deals and wailing and sorrow and, you know, God, I'm so sorry and I did this and I've got a complete list of every sin I committed for the last 12 years here. And it would mean nothing if God was not the God of grace inclined to hear you and deal with you as he has first dealt with our sin in the person of his son going to a cross for us. Well, it's apparent that about nine months have passed since this awful crime of David. Bathsheba's pregnancy has come full term, and as David's wife, we think wife number seven, at least by the ones that have been named, her child is born here about this time. Uriah's already had his military funeral, probably full honors with David's order, make sure you honor Uriah, great brave soldier. I wonder if he even gave a eulogy. I think he was just about bold enough in his sin to do that as a cover. But you know, even though it seems like David is just plotting and getting away with everything in chapter 11, let me point out to you that most people believe that Psalm 32 is directly tied to this hour in David's life. And if you wanted to even look at Psalm 32 for a moment, even the beginning verses of it, what you would find is a private spiritual, it's almost like someone entering their their own journal. Here's the state of my heart during this particular time, published, of course, later as a psalm. But what did David say was going on inside him, even when he was getting away with this whole political and personal charade of having Uriah killed and taking Bathsheba as his wife and so on and covering up the fact that it was his son? Psalm 32 verse 3 says his private state was such as this. When I kept silent, in other words, didn't confess my sin, my bones wasted away in my groaning all day, day and night. Your hand, God, was heavy upon me. Seemed like this man probably had looked over at the alarm clock more than once in the night to see 3.30 a.m., 4.15, 5 a.m., when is dawn going to come and release me from this ball and chain of shame and guilt that keep me from resting and sleeping? Your hand is heavy on me. Matthew Henry, the Puritan commentator, observed about this passage. He said, while God might suffer his people to fall into sin, he will not allow his own people to lie still in it for long. Then we see here in 12.1 that it was the God of pursuing grace who sent Nathan. There's a sense in which Nathan would say something, something urged me to go to David. We don't know much about Nathan. He appeared once before this, but this is the most notable place where he appears at all in the Bible, the most notable thing that he did, and it was a bold thing. Kings had prophets hang around supposedly to give them insight into what God might be saying or what the scriptures might teach. And Nathan came and maybe was accustomed to have a worship time or a time of giving the king instruction. 
So the setup for speaking to the king wasn't strange. And, and even the fact that he would come and tell a little parable, and the king probably wasn't sure whether it was a parable or an actual incident. And I remind you, too, that under this kind of monarchy government, there wasn't a separate court system necessarily or legislature. The king was more or less the whole government. So he was chief justice of the Supreme Court. And he's thinking, well, maybe I'm hearing an actual case that Nathan has known about, and he's calling to my attention. So this little parable, simple parable about a rich man stealing the one lamb of a poor man causes David's blood pressure to shoot high, and he rises to his feet because he's the Supreme Court justice and says, how is it this case hasn't already been adjudicated? Bring the man to me. I'll see that he dies. Gotcha. Right? Sometimes God holds a mirror up in front of us so that we see in the behavior of others what's going on in us. God knew the best way to expose David was to let him expose himself. And he speaks here so that his conscience no longer can hide. It's like David was a man standing in the middle of a great football stadium as night came and it was a gloomy place and he could be standing out in the middle of the stadium on the 50-yard line all by himself and, and imagine he was all alone in the stadium and then all of a sudden, bam! All those banks of stadium lights went on at once. And there he was for anyone to see, not just that he was physically there, but what he was right inside him. Grace pounced on him to say, you are that man. It's your life that shouts out this guilt, David. And God's heart-pursuing grace was timed so as to bring this man low. The Father who tracks us in his mercy, in his desire to see us reconciled to him, had David where he needed to be and to meet his God who was prepared to forgive if he would see sin, his own sin, the way God saw it. Now, secondly, besides God having pursued the guilty in grace, I think this text teaches us an important lesson we shouldn't miss that grace does not remove all worldly consequences of our sin. Grace does not remove all worldly consequences of sin. It does remove heavenly consequences. Now, listen to this differentiation. We teach little children in Sunday school what the word justified means. It means if you are a child of God, trusting in Christ as Lord and Savior, if you have called him Lord, committed your life to him, confessed before him your sinful state, we believe in heaven's final judgment. You are just as if I'd never sinned. Many a Sunday school teacher knows that one. Justified, just as if I'd never sinned. In the heavenly realm, in the final judgment of God, in eternal life, there's no shred, no rag, no stain, no scar of anything on this earth carried with you. However, grace does not remove all worldly consequences of our sin now, necessarily, in the life that we still live today. 
Sin brings all kinds of collateral damage along with it that is not magically wiped out. Now, many people are troubled at this text, and they say, look at this. God killed a baby. David's infant son died as a result of, and God links it to his sin. Because you did this, your son will die. People say, that's monstrous. That's terrible. What is God doing? Extracting payment from David? I'm the gracious God, and I will forgive you, but it will cost you your son. That's what it sounds like, at least on the human realm. But first of all, I would tell you, you actually can spare your pity for this infant. Stop and think a minute. This child was gathered back into his heavenly father's embrace. This child never experienced anything of the misery of earth, of social difficulty, economic difficulty, physical pain, suffering, disease, death, anything. In fact, this child didn't have to experience all the chaotic, painful upbringing and status he would have had within the tangled web of David's multiple families through the multiple wives. I'm going to assign you, go ahead if you're interested, and read chapter 13 because I'm not preaching on it next week. Not because it's X-rated, probably one of the most X-rated, now you'll all read it, one of the most X-rated chapters in the Bible. But just take a look at what was going on in the families of David's adult children. Amnon sexually assaulting his stepsister. And brother Absalom deciding Amnon's got to die, sets a plot, later does that. It's a mess. It's a terrible mess. And this baby would have been in the middle of all that. In the rivalry for who is going to be the next king. Quite possible he wouldn't have lived anyway. It's quite possible his stepbrothers would have seen to it that he didn't live. This child was gathered into the good and gracious arms of God. It's not the child's loss, it's David's loss that we look at. But don't assume that David paid for God's forgiveness with the life of his son. We don't pay for grace. I I talk to different people, and anyone who's in ministry talks to people who might sooner or later say, why is God punishing me? Why is this very negative thing happening? You know, sometimes to another person's sight, you can look at what they're talking about, the particular issue that they're calling punishment, and you can see, wait a minute, this is a pretty necessary and obvious consequence in many cases, not all the time, but many cases, of your behavior things that you did, things that happened in your family. And do you think that because you're a believer in Christ and you're eternally saved and your record is wiped clean in the blood of Christ that every possible circumstance of collateral damage that your sin has brought into place is just going to disappear? It just isn't that way. God doesn't work on a barter system and say, Let me throw a few lightning bolts at you, and that will pay for your sin. That's not the way he works at all. But there are, indeed, consequences that come from our own sin. In David's case, why exactly this infant had to die? Why was that a particular thing he had to suffer? I can't tell you the answer to that. But there were family disasters that were going to impact this king's life from here onward that were simply natural results of having seven wives 
and rival sons and all kinds of scars and difficulties and tensions and chaos going on in his home. The fact that not only did David disobey God in all those marriages and in adultery, he couldn't even seem to discipline his sons. He loved his sons. The one who was the biggest miscreant of all, Absalom, seemed to be the one he loved the best, and he couldn't put on a short reign. God allowed many things in this man's life as difficulties resulting from his own folly, and that will happen for you. You go into serious debt early in your life, and you come to Christ, and you say, ah, wonderful, I have a new life in Christ. But wait a minute, I'm $75,000 in debt from student loans and credit cards piled up. Well, that doesn't disappear with your salvation, folks. It has to be worked out, and it has to be paid. You use drugs and alcohol or whatever and abuse your body, that's going to have consequences. There are all kinds of things that where consequences follow sincerely, godly, believing people. And you say, why do they have to have all that in their life? Well, they made foolish decisions. Galatians 6, 7 says, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. What a man sows, he also reaps. That biblical principle is not canceled just because God has saved you. So don't ask, why is God punishing me? Just because maybe you're tasting what feels like some kind of a witch's brew that you concocted yourself. The interesting thing is with David, by the time we see him later in later chapters, as the consequences of all these things were sort of falling on him, Absalom has a revolt and humiliates his father and people are spitting in his face and so on because they think Absalom should be the king. David walks through all that humbly, submissively, and meekly. It seems as though he knows why all this is happening and that he is indeed receiving recompense for his own mistakes and his own family sin. I finally want to state this as a third point here as we go today and say to you, God's grace really does miraculously save. We cannot say enough about the grace of God. I remind you again of that last sentence at the end of chapter 11, the ominous sentence. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Another translation would say the thing he had done was evil in the sight of God. David got away with it, it seemed like, for most of a year. His cover-up seemed to work. But he still had a God problem. And the simple statement buried in verse 13 of chapter 12, it wasn't a lot that he had to say. Again, in English, only six words, I have sinned against the Lord. It wasn't eloquent in terms of detailing what he had done. It was eloquent in terms of tracing the problem to its real source. I, I have done what the prophet said. I have despised the Lord. I have rejected his word. I have trampled on his word. I have sinned against the Lord. It goes right to the root of the issue. David finally got it. And how seldom do people actually get it, that their sin really is against the Lord? Was it against Bathsheba? Sure it was. Uriah? Of course it was. But who is it really against? The Lord God Almighty. 
And we can look at anything we do wrong. And we've got, we don't have, I have sinned against the Lord on our lips. What we have is, well, you know, you have to consider my family. I really came from a messed up background. And now I've inherited all the poor behavior of them. Oh, oh um, you have to understand the stress I was under that day. Oh, uh, people didn't warn me what the consequences of that action would be. Uh, I did the best I could. And on and on we go. Not, I have sinned against the Lord. Someone has said, of course, we believe in original sin, if by that term you mean that our sin stems from the sin of our first parent, Adam and Eve, and we have inherited from them the will to rebel against God. We do believe in original sin, but this same person said, there's actually nothing original about sin. If you mean anything new about it, or that anybody knows how to do it differently, then other people have been doing it for centuries. In fact, one person said, any pastor, any counselor will tell you that sin is like watching 1950s TV reruns. There's nothing new. I've seen that before. That's old stuff. What else is new? But grace is new. Grace is revolutionary. Grace is surprising. Grace is stunning. Because grace takes the old situation of been there and done that a hundred times and makes it brand new in the eyes of God. Yes, David really was a man after God's heart for one reason only, because he quickly, in his conscience, got it when the Holy Spirit spoke to him by the word of God or by this prophet. Micah, the prophet, many years later also got it when he wrote Micah 7, 8, which was the basis of the first hymn we sang this morning. Who is a God like you, Micah said, pardoning iniquity, passing over transgressions for the remnant of his inheritance. And you see, God's grace breaks through, grabs us maybe by the neck, and we get it when we're able to say with David, I have sinned against the Lord. And whoever else I hurt, whoever else it was against, it was the Lord who was offended. You've heard of John Bunyan, of course. You've heard of Pilgrim's Progress. John Bunyan's probably second best-known book besides Pilgrim's Progress was his own spiritual autobiography in in which he wrote how he, as the the son of a tinker, he was called, a, a man who went village to village with a cart of clanking things made of tin, pots and pans, and in those days you actually mended your pots and pans. You didn't just buy a new one. That's what John Bunyan and his father did. And he wrote about being basically a gypsy and God called him and showed him who he was. And the title he gave to that book, which actually he wrote in prison, and he was in prison for preaching the gospel, the title of the book was Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. John Bunyan got it. And likewise, every one of us gets it when we see that we also are the chief sinner. You know, you can hear Paul writing that to Timothy. There's a place where he calls himself, saying to Timothy, that grace was available even to me, the chief of sinners. You say, oh, well, Paul, you're being so modest. Of course, you're not the chief of… Wait a minute. Yes, he was. Paul is saying, I have to see myself as the chief of sinners, and so do you, Timothy, and so does anybody 
who's properly going to bow under the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Grace, the power of grace. It's the very character of God. I saw a movie a couple of years ago we rented, and I cannot remember the name. Somebody's going to come and tell me what it is probably. But it was a, a, a film about, uh, based on a true experience of a Western family. I can't even remember if they were American or English, but they were vacationing uh, in, in uh, southern Asia somewhere when one of these great huge tsunamis came and swept away the resort where they were. And the special effects were unbelievable. You know, this tsunami wave. Here are these people having a delightful vacation, beaches, pools, you know, luxury motels and the whole spread. And of course, a town of poor people who served the luxury hotel. And here came this thing that looked like a wall of skyscrapers coming at them and swept that entire landscape away and then sucked them back out as it went back out to sea. Now you say, what does that have to do with grace? Well, that's a destructive force, a huge destructive force. But think of the grace of God as coming in that kind of tsunami power to take hold of us wash us clean, and sweep us into the arms of God. That's what God's grace does, and that's why human repentance can and does have a real result. We'll try to see next week. The hymn we sang has this line in it, sin and despair, like the sea waves cold, threaten the soul with infinite loss, but grace that is greater, yes, grace untold points to the refuge. What's the refuge? the mighty cross. God's grace plan is to forgive you by the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's what forgave David. It hadn't happened yet. It wasn't going to happen for centuries, but it was the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ in which David's salvation is based. And I declare to you now that because of that cross, the Scripture is true. Where sin abounds, Grace abounds all the more. Thanks be to God. Father, I thank you for this picture of your servant David. It's not a pretty one, nor is what comes in his family down the line for decades afterward. But it ought to be a lesson, and we pray that it will be. I pray that somebody today who might be broken under some circumstance, something perhaps that they've been making excuses for for many days or years, would finally get it. I have sinned against the Lord and would let that tsunami of grace take hold of them and change them and forgive them that they might hear your words, you will not eternally die. You will live. Thank you for Jesus Christ who made that grace available. Amen.